Hi, I'm Greg Lefebvre, and this is The Compulsive Storyteller, a series of short personal stories that prove that truth can be stranger than fiction. Today's story is The Wildest Street in NYC. The Wildest Street in NYC. The year is 1993. I live in a great 3,000-square-foot loft at 32 Green by Canal Street in the Soho section of Lower Manhattan. This morning, like most mornings, I get up early and take my coffee on the steel loading dock in front of my building before the cobblestone street comes to life. As I head from my living quarters in the back of the loft to the loading dock area, I'm surprised to hear a lot of noise coming from outside. When I open the building's front door, I'm shocked to find myself entering into the middle of a serious film shoot. There are probably 50 people in the crew, and the camera and lights are focusing on a group of Caribbean musicians setting up in the middle of my loading dock with their congas and instruments, getting ready to start performing. As I stand there, a short, plump, disgruntled-looking man sitting next to the cameraman, who I assume is the director, says, Hey, you, get out of the shot. I look at him nonplussed, and he continues, Do you speak English? Get out of the shot. He's so aggressive and rude, I shoot back, No, why don't you and your people get off of my loading dock? It's yours, he asks, still in the same tone. Yes, it's mine, and I'd like you to stop trespassing and get everybody back in the street. Sorry, he continues in a softer tone. We spent hours getting all of our gear unloaded, setting up everything, and getting the lighting just right. Not my problem. I walk out of my loft, and my day begins by being accosted and ridiculed by you. I'm really sorry. No, not nearly good enough. Well, then, what would it take for you to let us continue? I think for a minute, then say, for you to get down on your knees and apologize. I can see from the amused looks on the crew's faces that they're loving this, because he probably treats all of them the same way. Then he does a quick dip on one knee and says, sorry. No, I'm talking about getting down fully on both knees and then using some of that directorial creativity of yours to come up with a real heartfelt apology. He does as requested and comes up with a really sincere-sounding apology. Okay, you can stay, and I head back inside to start my day. Turns out they were filming a commercial for shoes. I rented my law from the Rava brothers, who, while being the true real estate titans of Soho, were also three very nice guys. They actually cared about their tenants, and their offices were filled with paintings they accepted from artists in lieu of rent. One of them is the handyman who'll come over and fix your doorknob, one handles the rental office, and the third plays on Wall Street, losing money while the other two complain about it. They own a dozen cast iron buildings, now worth millions of dollars. Their father, Rosario, bought them when he was a rag picker. He collected rags and scraps from the declining sweatshops of Soho at a time when manufacturing of clothing was moving to Asia. He stored his rags in empty buildings, many of which he was able to buy, never paying more than $10,000 for a building. 
Their offices were next door at 2830 Green Street in what has been called the Queen of Green Street, considered by many to be the most stunning cast iron building in all of Soho. I love my loft. It's on the first floor of another cast iron building, and I have my sculpture studio by the loading dock. I work with tree trunks, branches, knot holes, and burls. Besides having all sorts of tree parts stored here, I also have a number of woodworking machines, band saws, table saws, lathes, and the like. It's a messy shop, but if you walk through the double doors into my living quarters, it's another world. There's a huge tilted skylight that starts on top of my 20-foot ceiling and fills the entire width of the back of the building. Below it, there's an island kitchen and a huge table bathed in sunlight. When the weather is good, that's where I take my meals. It's now early afternoon, and the film crew is just finishing up. When I head out, several of the crew members quietly thank me for putting the director in his place. Walking a few doors down Green to Canal, I take a left and go to my favorite hardware store, Moe's Wholesale Hardware. Moe is a tall, skinny, bearded, very tough Brooklyn guy. He's the only one allowed at the cash register. There are always four stepladders stationed at strategic points around the store. On top of each one is a young Chinese guy looking around fiercely for shoplifters. Mo says this system is much preferable to CCTV. While I'm searching for some cable staples, I notice a guy and his girlfriend buy Mo at the cash register, and Mo has subtly alerted the latter guys who come down off their perches. One of them suddenly brings down the heavy, corrugated metal door that covers the front door of the store, while the other three surround the couple who are attempting to purchase two small items resting on the counter. Mo challenges them. Now take out the floppy disk you put in your backpack and your pockets. The guy responds, I haven't taken anything, at which point Mo brings out a sawed-off shotgun from beneath the counter. Seeing this, I run to the back of the store and lay down behind four big barrels filled with heavy chains, the most bulletproof place in the store. The guy doubles down and refuses to admit that he's been caught stealing. His girlfriend gives him away, saying, Come on, baby, give it back, please. He hesitates, looks down the double barrels, and relents. Now one of the young Chinese guys asks him to turn around and takes an instant Polaroid of the guy, which he places in an already prepared dossier. When he refuses to show ID and sign the attached statement admitting the theft, Mo says, okay then, now we call the cops. With that, the guy capitulates. The gate is pulled up and another Canal Street adventure comes to an end. Afterwards, I stand out on the street looking around, musing that this has to be the wildest street in New York. Besides my onset debacle this morning and the armed confrontation, from where I'm standing, here's what I observe. Several groups of very dark-skinned African men are displaying their Prada and Chanel bag knockoffs on a bedsheet on the sidewalk. An older Chinese woman selling tiny live baby turtles squatting behind a red tub of water. Another Chinese woman stands nearby selling very realistic copies of Tiffany and Rolex watches with multiple timepieces strapped to her arms. Next to her, a small crowd is gathered around a guy playing the shell game on top of a cardboard box. He's using three screw bottle tops and a small rubber pea. At the back edge of the crowd, I think I recognize a pair of pickpockets getting ready to go to work. 
Sprinkled throughout the whole panoply are all types of homeless people, some panhandling, some yelling, some asleep, and some unconscious from drugs or alcohol. Suddenly there is a shrill whistle, which is repeated many times along the street, alerting everyone that there's a group of four plainclothes detectives, all clad in t-shirts, jeans, and sneakers moving along the street. The African handbag guys bundle up their bags and their display sheets, which become big sacks thrown over their shoulders as they hurry off. The shell game guys kick over their cardboard box and walk away. The watch sellers roll down their sleeves and everyone else doing something illegal melts into the crowd. In an instant, it looks like there's nothing going on here at all. These aren't the only criminal enterprises at work. Car thieves are often out as well. On any day on the side streets of Canal, you can find two-man teams popping the trunks of cars with out-of-state plates, where they'll most likely find a cache of valuables. One day while watching this from my loading dock, I pretended to make a hand signal to an imaginary plainclothes accomplice across the street, and they raced off, leaving their bags of booty behind. Another day, I observed a low-level duo, one breaking the side window of cars with an iron pipe and not entering, then the other, seemingly unrelated accomplice, reaches through the broken glass window to unlock the door and enter. Breaking and entering garners the perps much more prison time than simply breaking or entering individually. On Green Street, I find a group of three short, squat Hispanic men, two with tote bags filled with stolen radios, standing by the open door of my van, while a fourth man works on carefully removing my Blaupunkt radio from my dashboard. When I charge up, one of them takes out a small, cheap-looking pistol, which stops me in my tracks. The four guys then turn and leisurely walk around the corner. As luck would have it, a cop car comes along and I flag them down. They're not particularly interested, so I plead, there was four of them with bags of radios and they just turned the corner. When I get into the squad car or around the corner, there's no one there. The cop smiles and asks me to get out. While the gang took their time getting to the corner, they must have sped away and split up afterwards. After getting my van radio stolen a second time, I go to an alleyway flea market I've heard about that sells stolen car radios. Mine is nowhere to be found, but I discover another in mint condition. At that moment, I cross an invisible line that many before me have crossed. Once you knowingly buy stolen goods, it's hard to complain about thievery. One of the oldest criminal enterprises I still haven't mentioned. On the uptown side of Canal, toward the Holland Tunnel, is an old nondescript four-story brick building with a guy outside dressed up in an army camouflage outfit. He's the doorman for the brothel inside. If you watch, every few minutes a man or group of men talk to him and are granted entry. If you observe for longer, every so often an NYPD squad car will park in front and the cops will enter as well. Turns out that every cop in the precinct gets a complimentary visit once a month. Ah yes, Canal is the wildest street in New York. This street sometimes brings out the worst in me. The shell game guys and the three-card Monty teams are both variations on the same theme. With the shell game, the lead guy clearly places the P, a little rubber ball, under one of three screw-top bottle caps, the shells. He moves them around a little bit, but not so much that the mark loses track of where the P is. 
Then, when the mark points to the particular cap where he's sure the P rests and places a cash wager, the dealer turns over the cap while he adeptly and invisibly palms the P, and the mark loses his money. When I first moved here, after observing the game many times, I went to a magic shop and bought my own pee, picked up three screw-top bottle caps, and practiced the sleight-of-hand moves until I had them down pat. I'm not sure what I was expecting when I wagered, and as I turned over the empty cap, deftly deposited my own pee. Maybe I was trying to get even for all those people who I'd watched be duped. The dealer looked me in the face with dead-eyed surprise, then doubled me over with a well-placed punch. I don't know what I was thinking, but I didn't expect this. The box was kicked over, and they were all gone in the wink of an eye. I've now lived at 32 Green Street for three years, and it's time to move on. The neighborhood gets more gentrified by the day, and the robbers are making noises about raising my rent. But they also generously offered to allow me to sell the improvements that I've made to my space, which are substantial. The $30,000 I garner when I sell proves that it's the perfect time to leave. The money allows me to make a down payment on a Bleecker Street co-op, so now I actually own a place instead of renting, thanks to them. Years later, I run into an acquaintance from those days, and I'm saddened to hear his story about the Rava brothers. When one of them passed away, the kids of the other brothers demanded that they sell the buildings so they could get their hands on the millions of dollars involved. The brothers ended up in court and lost, so they had to sell everything. Apparently, the two surviving brothers were so heartbroken that they both passed away in less than a year from the sale. They'd spent their whole lives tending to their tenants in their buildings, and now they had nothing to live for. How sad. I've come down to Canal from time to time over the years, but always on a mission. So today I decided to walk along the street with an eye toward seeing how much has changed in the last 30 years. On the side streets, the cast iron buildings are impeccably restored and are now either flagship stores or slick corporate interiors visible through very clean plate glass windows. When I turn left on the canal, I'm pleased to find that things are exactly the same. The whole cast of characters are all in place, doing what they do. The only difference is that the brothel is gone, along with the Chinese woman selling baby green turtles from her red plastic tub. Still the wildest street in New York City. Are you ready to tell your own story on The Compulsive Storyteller? We're launching a new series of guest storytelling, and we want to hear your stories. Email a voice recording to hello at thecompulsivestoryteller.com. I'll play selected stories on upcoming episodes. Try to be as clear as possible in your recordings, and we reserve the right to lightly edit them for length and clarity. Leave your name or contact information in your email, and let us know if you'd like your story to be anonymous. I can't wait to hear from you. 
The Compulsive Storyteller is now co-produced by Greg Lefebvre and Fadia Mansarath, who's also arranged the music and created the special effects. Peter Kokoma has made our theme music and for many seasons also co-produced the show with me. If you enjoyed this week's episode, let us know. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at The Compulsive Storyteller, and we'd love to hear from you. This podcast is independently produced, so we really appreciate all your help and support. Share the show with your friends, subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and please leave a review. You can also check out our website, thecompulsivestoryteller.com, for more information. Thanks for listening, and if you didn't like this one, the next one will be another story. All characters and events portrayed in this podcast are based on my truth, with some names and facts changed for privacy. The conversations and dialogues are based on my best memory, but are not word-for-word recreations.